you when you came across Kierkegaard, yeah. uh, what were some of your feelings like? I mean, you picked up a book. Was it in college? How did you even yeah, yeah. come to so, discover him? I was in college when a professor, he kept referencing this crazy wild name, Kierkegaard, and I didn't even know how to spell that. So, you know, I read up on Kierkegaard and I was always interested in existentialism, especially from an atheistic perspective. Mm. And to hear about existentialism really being birthed from a Christian, I, I consider Kierkegaard a pastor in a way. You know, a lot of his work, I, I read them as sermons. And to hear the history of existentialism starting from this Danish philosopher, um, that's kind of what got me interested. And then some of his ideas, um, I guess as a, as a Christian and as someone kind of sh- struggling with a sense of self and identity, mm-hmm. I, I really just related to it. And I found that strange to relate to the writings of someone from the 1800s. You know, and, and that was that is what continues to compel me to Kierkegaard is that I think a lot of what he's saying is timeless because mm. it's, it's rooted in the very foundations of Christianity. And I think that's beautiful and amazing thing. And, and also his perspective and how he displays a different facet of Christianity. I, yeah, I just find that so interesting. That's great, man. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he, He's a tough read for me sometimes. Yeah, so yeah. He can be very, very difficult, especially sometimes he, he writes in pseudonyms mm. and he kind of removes himself from different voices in his work yes. to try, like, his style of, of indirect teaching in a way. It's, yes. It's yes. pretty, it, it can be challenging for me. In, in one sense, it is echoing the writing style of Plato mm. in... in uh, in, in conveying a philosophy that draws you in to the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, very imp- that, and that's in a very important uh, literary posture for an existentialist, uh, which is why you see that in uh, some of the other theistic existentialists like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and the atheist existentialists like Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre and, and, and Nietzsche and others. They typically resort to a literary mode that that is narrative in form it's drawing folks it wants to draw the reader into the story so that they can feel the full weight of what's going on and have the reader wrestle with the decisions and the questions that are being put forth right something that that can't easily be done with a philosophical treatise that's yeah. putting forth, you know, in a didactic sense, like here are the truths that the perennial truths that I'm going to unveil for you. Yeah. Uh, Kierkegaard did not want to do that, even though now with current translations and um, what's being put out, kind of discoveries of his journals and and some of his other forms, he, he does have writings like that, yeah. like training in Christianity. But even that's put uh, with pseudonym uh, titles, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and he he's serious also about giving a voice for varying perspectives, right? That, that's the reason for his pseudonyms, right? For, for the, 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 the offering different angles um, because he, he wants to, let's say, for instance, in his works, um, either or, you know, uh, and, and he's giving the aesthetic perspective of a person who's living a sort of sensualist, hedonistic lifestyle mm-hmm. and writing from that angle, uh, and then writing from the angle of, 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 of a conservative ethicist, right? Which is the next uh, stage in, in, in the three stages of life's way, as it were. So he wants us to really 
play around with those perspectives, go in there. And he wants to, in that, have us come to, as it were, come to terms and see the the inner logic of those positions mm-hmm. and to get to the point where we see, ah, they they aren't really satisfying those positions, right? So it's just, it's, it's, and there's much more to say about that, but yeah. he's a hard read. He's he is not very... easy. <laughs> he's not an easy read. Yeah. Right. But I, I do, I do appreciate in some of his writings, he does employ a technique of, of parable, mm. you know, not, not unlike Christ to, to just kind of that indirect method of teaching and to, kind of present you with a question to answer a question with another question in a way and and i appreciate that he who loves the perfections he sees in a person does not see the person and thus does not truly love for such a person ceases to love as soon as the perfections cease but even when the most distressing change occurs The person does not thereby cease to be. Love does not vault into heaven, for it comes from heaven and with heaven. He's alluding there to the incarnation. Mm -hmm. He's alluding there to to God's love. Mm -hmm. God's love is always a love of condescension, a love that's emptying, a self-emptying love that leaves the height of heaven to come to us and to be commingled with dirt, with dust, with blood, sweat, and tears, you know? And so there he's he's really giving us an insight to the the theological locus that's yeah. that's 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 mediating this understanding of love. It is a a, a, a Christocentric form of love in, in essence. And he goes on to say it steps down and thereby accomplishes loving the same person throughout all of his changes, good or bad, because it sees the same person in all his changes. So whether or not the person now is uh, possessing more imperfections rather than imperfections, it's still the same person. Mm -hmm. And love is about seeing the person, good or bad. Human love is always flying after the beloved's perfection. In other places in his writings, uh, Kierkegaard talks about that as poetic love. Yeah. Poetic love. Um, As just like an idealistic form of love. And and it's the kind of love that 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 I would that I would say um, (laughs) that that we are deeply acquainted with in the beginning of any romantic relationship. The first three months to the first year where the honeymoon. Yeah, the honeymoon. Right. You're just hyper focused, you know, on, on the good qualities, as it were. Yeah. Uh, Human love is always flying after the beloved's perfections, he says. Christian love, however, loves despite imperfections and weaknesses. In every change, love remains with him, loving the person it sees. And then the the last, should I read the last passage here? The last portion? Absolutely. Alas. I love you. You got to love what he says. Alas. Alas. (laughs) Alas. In conclusion. (laughs) Alas, we, we talk about finding the perfect person in order to love him. You know how many people... No, I'm not even going there. <laughs> Christi- Christianity teaches us that the, per- that the perfect person is the one who limitlessly loves the person he sees. We humans always look upward for the perfect object, but in Christ, love looks down to earth and loves the person it sees. If then you wish to become perfect in love, Strive to love the person you see. 
just as you see him with all his imperfections and weaknesses. Love him as you see him when he is utterly changed, when he no longer loves you, when he perhaps turns indifferently away or turns to love someone else. His last few words are, love him as you see him when he betrays and denies you. Love the person you see and see the person you love. Mm. <laughs> well, I have, I have a question. Would another way of looking at it, what, I, what I'm hearing is, you're not looking past this person's flaws, but it's almost like I see this person and maybe I disagree with this person's personality or this person's choices in life. But it's almost like I am aware that this person is this is just one slice of this person's life and that who this person's being is, is much more than who they are now. I don't know. Like, I just I kind of see it that way, like looking at it, that perspective that even though I see this person in this particular moment in time. Loving them in a way is also recognizing that this person is much more than just this person in this particular moment in time. Amazing. Amazing. I would say yes. I, I, the word eternal, like recognizing the eternal in the person. Yeah. Um, I hesitate with that. I hesitated saying it. Yeah. Yeah. I sense that. I sense that. <laughs> I sense that because I like, uh, it has a kind of the air of a platonic mm-hmm. otherworldliness. Yeah. Like a that, spirituality. Yeah, right. Or, right. And, and, and it, and it may kind of lead us to once again, loving the ideal. Okay. That's right? true. Loving that's true. the ideal. Um, but, but the Bible will put it as um, recognizing that the person before you, whoever it is, in whatever condition that he or she is in, and whatever he or she has done to you, is an image bearer of God, mm-hmm. the imago dei, mm-hmm. right? The the image and likeness of God, and 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 that sort of anthropology, that sort of understanding of what it means to be human, is what grounds all of the ethical and the moral obligations and how we are to treat one another. James uh, alludes to this in, in the letter uh, by by Saint James, right, where he speaks of uh, again recognizing that the persons that we interact with, how we treat people when they come into our meetings um, and and what we say to people when he talks about language in in the book of James needs to be um, always in concert, always, it always must reckon with the fact that that person is an imago dei, a person who is made in the image and likeness of God. You know, it's crazy. That is crazy. So, so now, you know, now the question is like, what is that? You know, what does that mean? The image and likeness of God that raises other um, forms of inquiry. But I would submit to everyone that Christ is the the image and likeness of God par excellence. It is the the what it really means to be human. We turn to Christ. All anthropology is to be set against a Christology, right, about who, who Christ is, an encounter with Christ. Because Christ reveals to all of us what it means to be genuine human, genuinely human and genuinely divine. Mm-hmm. Right. And watch this now. Christ on the cross, broken and all, bloodied, ugly, dejected, rejected, crying out the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is also the image and likeness of God. Wow. 
Christ on the cross recapitulates and sums up the underside of human history, the history of oppression, the history of, of dehumanization. Nevertheless, Christ on the cross is Christ glorified. How though? Bro! I, I, do, <laughs> I have questions. Like how, yeah. how, how is that moment mm. in history? Oh my goodness. Christ glorified or God glorified. <sighs> you're asking, you're asking the, 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 $1,001 question. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Do we do you want to start with a, a $500 question? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because I have one that sure. I think stems from this. Sure. I guess and it's a kind of a practical question. How do we love that which infringes upon mm. our personhood in the sense of like it, inf- it infringes upon our values, what we believe in, what we stand for, like our enemies in a way how do how do we love our enemies uh, under the idea that our enemies also bear the image of god mm. well i think the last part of what you just said is the key um or part of the key to learning how to love our enemies mm-hmm. right is to recognize that our enemies are human beings made in the image and likeness of God and that whatever he or she has done to us and is doing to us, it does not in any way remove or disregard their image bearingness, Mm. right? As human beings that they are still the image. You can't forfeit that by means of a bad behavior or by means of your, that even Adolf Hitler, People love to write reference as the great scoundrel of human history, right? At least recently. Um, Even Adolf Hitler to the end is made in the image and likeness of God. And what he was doing was trying to strip that that image and likeness of God from yeah, from those he persecuted. Absolutely. So I think that's that now. I mean, but, you know, the question still stands. How, Joe, how do you love yeah. <laughs> the enemy? And and I, of course, I'm not going to give a, an, an answer. Uh, there's no way of simply uh, addressing it except by saying the following, that in our own strength, it is an impossibility. In as far as Christianity is an impossibility without the grace and power of God, mm-hmm. right? We need grace to do this. And I think that when we open ourselves more and more to that grace, one of the things that we discover is that the first and primary enemy that we must learn to love is God himself. Wow. <laughs> because God is the enemy we are in enmity against god by virtue of our fallenness regardless of the way in which we couch ourselves and articulate ourselves as friends of god and lovers of god even as christ followers we continually are tempted to hate god by virtue of us loving our sin right and flirting with it it's a crazy dynamic like that so so I would say I would posit the question by by or respond to the question by saying, let us let us consider what it means to love God who was our first enemy. Now, there there is a lot to be said about that, especially given that God reveals himself to us as love personified. 
right? While we were yet dead in our transgressions, Christ died for us, right? We put Christ on the cross, yet Christ said, uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? So there is an amazing mystery that we are drawn into there to to really meditate on and and to and, it, and it, we have to in a sense be baptized into that we need to really be catechized into that um and, and that's a process it's the process of discipleship on a more earthy sense we must kind of from a more pragmatic perspective i think one of the ways we learn to love our enemies is by simply praying for them mm. just simply lifting them up Lifting them up in prayer, and there is something that that is mysterious that happens when 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 we begin to do that. I mean, I've had personally, I've had the experience of praying for persons who have intentionally, like they, they were out to harm me, right? And dude, I I you know, I, in in that sense, something happens that is outside of my awareness. There's a shift. It's, a, it's almost as if language is too impoverished, too poor to capture the, the, the infinite logic of love that turns my own heart that is within my chest slowly around to begin to open up to this other who was my enemy and is now slowly becoming a brother and a friend. Wow. You know, it's a crazy. Yeah. And and I, and I, you know, and this is what it means to, I, I think this is part of what Paul is alluding to when he says to, to, you know, the fellowshipping in the suffering of Christ, you know, Philippians. Um, he wants to know the power of his resurrection, the power of the resurrection of Christ, but also the, the, to share in the intimate awareness of the suffering of Christ. And we as evangelical Christians, we tend to romanticize that, I think. We, we talk about martyrdom and dying for the gospel and, oh, I, I will go all the way for Christ. Yet in our lives, we we, we fail to carry our cross yeah. in, in, in what it seems to be an infinite number of ways in this kind of postmodern uh, uh, rampant materialism, sensual, hedonistic world, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. like, yeah, we could, you know, we could idealize all kinds of stuff, but what does that mean in the here and now in my life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that that commandment to love and to love on that level makes sense. Why we're commanded to pick up our cross daily, <laughs> every single day. Yeah, there's so, there are yeah. those opportunities. Yeah, to love that which is not easy to love, dude. And 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 I get why you say. Um, that you you see Kierkegaard in in a certain way as a pastor, yeah. Because you know, just reading what we just read, just just read that on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and you have a sermon. Absolutely, that's it. Absolutely, that's it. Go home, right? Just that's <laughs> it, and meditate on that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the genius of Kierkegaard is his ability to reckon with and help us to reckon with the weight of the call of Christ in our life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who himself was deeply influenced by the writings of Kierkegaard, uh, wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, about how we fall into this idea of cheap grace, right? That that we live as if grace is cheap, Mm. right? We say, oh, you know, Christ is going to forgive. I'm good. Let me let me do me. And um, though grace is free, by definition, God's free, unmerited favor to us, that freedom cost God everything. 
So it's not cheap. But we conflate the freedom of grace with cheapness. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's Bonhoeffer and that's Kierkegaard. And that's, I think, Protestant theology at its best. It captures and vivifies the weight of the cross for the here and now. You know, it's... I mean, I just... Brother, I, I could... Yeah. It's just it's good, man. It's good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's good stuff. 